We are going to be in the book of Haggai, and we are starting Haggai chapter 2. And so while you guys are turning to Haggai chapter 2, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we just want to continue just presenting ourselves to you, Father God. As we've given you our hearts in worship, we want to give you our hearts and our minds for your word. And as you speak your word to us this morning, we pray for you to give us understanding. We pray for you to give us strength to carry out your word. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Haggai chapter 2, this is the second message that Haggai receives from the Lord to give to the Israelites post-exile. So we're on the other side of the Babylonian exile now. And uh, the title of the message is Shaping Expectations. Remember the theme for Haggai is uh, think carefully about your ways. And last week we looked at wrong priorities. And so this week we're going to be looking at shaping expectations. And I have a question. I want to know if it's just me or not. But when you recall stories or memories from your past, do we tend to exaggerate it, perhaps romanticize it a little bit? It's always better in our memory than it really was when we experienced it. This is where the joke about, you know, the fish that you caught when you went out fishing, this is how the fish continues to grow. As, as the years go on, the fish gets bigger, which doesn't tend to happen. Usually uh, the fish stays the same size. It's always bigger in our memory. Maybe when we recall the past or we desire to do something from our past, we, we relive, we remake that moment. Have you ever been let down? Because you're like, this isn't quite how I remembered it. Why, why, why isn't this as good as I remember it being? There's some foods that I ate as a child that I was like, oh man, that was so good. I got to make it for myself now that I'm an adult and I can do that. And then I'm like, isn't all that great. I don't know what I was thinking as a kid. I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's because my palate is more refined. Actually, what they say is uh, as you get older, you lose taste buds. And so you don't get all those other flavors in there. Um, our stories of the future, of everything that we want, like when we start talking about, oh, I want it to be this way, or oh, I believe it's going to be that way. We tend to glamorize it. We tend to aggrandize it. And so then when we walk into the future, kind of like a letdown. I mean, how many of us grew up watching the Jetsons, right? Just to let you guys know, on July 31st, that was George Jetson's birthday. So somewhere out there, George Jetson just got born. Who remembers Back to the Future? Remember when 2015 came around and we were looking for the flying cars and the hoverboards and all that stuff? Well, we got hoverboards. Those aren't hoverboards, are they? We're let down because reality doesn't match our expectation that was shaped by the picture painted that we had for the future. And so both how we view the past and what we see for the future paints our picture for the present. And it shapes our expectations unrealistically. Like the middle child, always compared to the older child or the younger child, never allowed to be yourself, at least not while they're growing up. And I can speak from experience because I am a middle child and I have a middle child. And so you're lucky you have a middle child for a parent. So I understand the special things that come with that. But this morning, as we turn to look at Haggai's next message, we're reminded, again, his first message is about wrong priorities. And his second message is about misshapen expectations. And so he gives them and us this morning, the proper views by which we must shape our expectations for today and for tomorrow. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. 
Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you first came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. For the Lord of armies says, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of army. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And so as we think about these expectations and how we're supposed to shape it, the first thing we need to understand is the reason why we want to shape our expectations correctly is because discouragement comes through misshapen expectations. As Haggai is given this message, the Lord is speaking to him to speak to the people because of something that he sees. It says, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And he, the Lord says, speak to Zerubbabel, speak to Joshua, speak to the remnant of the people. And what you're to speak is this, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? So let's get the date out of the way, okay? The 21st day of the seventh month is the 21st day of Tishri. Okay, if we're, if we're looking at the Jewish calendar. The month of Tishri usually occurs during September and October of the Gregorian calendar. The month of Tishri is a very special month for the Hebrew people. It's full of holy days. It's full of celebration. Um, the first and second of Tishri is Rosh Hashanah, which is the celebration of creation. The opinions in the Talmud say that Adam and Eve were created on the first of Tishri. The third of Tishri is Zamgadalia, which is a fast day for one of their governors that was assassinated. They have a fast day for him. And then the ninth of Tishri is Erev Yom Kippur. And the tenth of Tishri, Yom Kippur. So you have the eve of Yom Kippur and Yom Kippur. Then from the 15th to the 21st of Tishri is Sukkot, the festival of booths or the feast of tabernacles. So they're on the 21st day of the seventh month, which should be the last day of what should have been the feast of tabernacles. The word of the Lord came to Haggai for Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant people. This is a month after what we read last week. This is a month after they had their zeal for building the Lord's house being restored. But a month later, here they are full of discouragement. Zeal had evaporated into an era of depression. On what should have been a day of celebration in the festival of booths and the feast of tabernacles, a celebration of weeks, a reminder of God's faithfulness, instead, they're downcast. You see, the festival of booze is the Feast of Tabernacles, and it reminds the people of God's faithfulness. It reminds them of his faithfulness to fulfill his promises to his people. It reminds them of his faithfulness to provide for his people, because it was always done at, at the first of the, of the uh, harvest. And then it was also of his faithfulness to be present among his people. Instead, you have the people all the way from the political realm to the religious realm and all of the common people, they're discouraged and they're discouraged in the work of the Lord. And so God sent a message through Haggai. He says, hey, I see all my people discouraged. Haggai, I need you to go talk to them. I need you to tell them what I have to say to them. Why do I say the people were discouraged? Why, why do we read that they're discouraged? God gave Haggai these specific questions to ask in order to open their eyes to what their problem was. You see, they were discouraged through unmet expectations of rebuilding the house of the Lord. When you have misshapen expectations, that's where you get unmet expectations. 
If you shape your expectations wrong, reality can never live up to it. How do expectations become misshapen? Let's look at the questioning from the Lord to the people. He asked three questions. First one is, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Then he says, how does it look to you now? And then he says, doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? He's, he's saying, those of you that remember what the house of the Lord was when Solomon built it. Remember, it was gold-plated. It had bronze. It had precious jewels. It was laden. It, it was paneled with cedar. It was completely decked out. And he says, how does it look to you now? They're building with what building supplies they have. They don't have the gold. They don't have all the treasures. They don't have all the things to, to make it bling and pop. And so then God asked the final question, which kind of gets them to the heart of it. Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? In their eyes, they're like, when I think about Solomon's temple, that's the house of God. When I think about the temple we're building right now, what is this? It's nothing. Through these three questions, the Lord is going to prick the heart of the problem. Ezra is kind of also in alignment with the book of Haggai, in which Ezra takes the people back and they begin the rebuilding of the temple um, after the exile. So Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, it says, When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets and the Levites descended from Asaph, holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed. It says, they sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. Verse 12. But many of the older priests the Levites, the family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. Others shouted joyfully and the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. And so there's joy for those who had never seen the house of the Lord. They were born in exile and they're coming out of exile. Now they get to build a house of the Lord where they get to worship their God with freedom. And then there's those who are like, well, it's not like it was before. And so here they are weeping going, why do we even bother trying? Some of the people had heard or seen the glories for the temple that was destroyed 66 years earlier. Here's the thing. Misshapen expectations come from misguided comparisons between the work of God in, in various times and places. God did this before. How come it's not the same as it was then? What is he doing now? Is he doing anything now? The comparisons are never beneficial, by the way. Never compare what God is doing today with what God did yesterday. We're, we're not called to compare the work that we're doing today compared to the work that God had called people to do before. You'll get exhausted, and it's very detrimental. It's not helpful for the people in Haggai's day to think and reminisce on the magnificent temple of Solomon. How can you compare it? He was the king. He had all the riches in the land. He had no expense to spare to build the house of the Lord. They are a people coming out of exile with materials given to them by the king of Babylon or of Persia at the time. How's it going to compare? See, when we compare, it leads us to believe that our meager gift is of no use to the Lord. And therefore we may as well not offer it. If we can't build as Solomon did, then we may as not build at all. And the truth of the matter is, is all the works of us as men fall short of the glory of God. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you serve in a ministry that other people serve in and, and you can see the various success of other ministries. I'll tell you, number one, as a pastor, you have to fight the comparisons. You're always going to be comparing, well, how come this guy over here 
started at the same time we did, and they're, they're a church of 5,000. We're a church of 50 to 60. Why do I even bother? Why do I even do this? Or maybe you're a musician, and you're like, well, I'm not as good as, and pick any, you know, Phil Wickham or any of those famous professional musicians that dedicate all their time to it. And you go, well, why am I even doing that? Why don't we just get Phil Wickham in here? You know, it's, we can't compare what the Lord is doing through different people. What we need to be focused on is what does the Lord want to do through us? What is he calling us to do? The first mistake that they made was giving an exaggerated importance to the external in the religion and uh, external features of religion and worship. Don't ever give an exaggerated importance to the external features of something when it comes to religion and worship. You see, the people are stuck in the memory. They're like, oh, that magnificent temple. You remember how it looked? You remember how it shone when the sun hit it just right? You remember how all the jewels sparkled? They're stuck in the memory of the magnificent glory of Solomon's temple. And it can lead us to believe, and it led them to believe that somehow it's more glorifying to God on the outside than what's going on in the inside. And the truth is, it's not the outward appearance of the house that pleases God. It's the reality of the inward worship for which it was built. Consider Jesus's words to the disciples when they were leaving the temple one day. In Mark 13, it says, as he was going out of the temple, one of the disciples said, teacher, Look, what massive stones, what an impressive building. By the way, this is the same temple that they had built in Haggai's day with a little bit of upgrades from Herod the Great. He, he was a very humble guy. What massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. So here they are glorifying this magnificent building. And Jesus is like, this building's not even going to be here anymore. He was predicting the future, what would happen not only in 70 AD through Titus, but also that the destruction would be the consequence of the defiled worship within it that he pointed out in Mark 11. He says, I would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he was teaching them, it's not, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves because they have chosen to turn the house of the Lord into a marketplace. God is more concerned about what goes on in the temple than what the temple looks like. And again, I say, remember when we revisit places, we revisit things from our past, it never meets up with our remembrance of them. I can tell you many different times where I'm like, hey kids, why don't you come watch this show with me? And it's not as great as I thought it was find out some of them, like back in the day, you're like, oh, TV was much more wholesome back then. No, it wasn't. It was bad. But if we're not careful, our past experiences are going to begin shaping our present expectations. And we do it with a lot of things, right? Sports teams. Any, anybody a Cowboys fan from the 90s? The dream team? What about the Bulls from the same era? We compare every team. Well, they weren't no bulls of the 90s. <laughs> well, the Cowboys of the 90s, the dream team could have taken them on, right? We, we go back to those teams. There's some teams, however, that have never been good. We're still waiting for that decade to choose where we're like, oh, those, like I'm a Jaguars fan. They don't have a good year yet. We're waiting for it. And then I'm going to hold on to it and I'm going to keep it. But we do it with everything in our childhood. We do it with, with our childhood. Everything that we did as a child, oh, that was the best. Oh, it was the, the best thing. My kids are going to love it. My kids have never liked anything from my childhood. They go, oh my gosh, you liked this? What's wrong with you? <laughs> we do it with our nation. Back in the day, it was so great to be a part of this nation. There were great things about the nation, but there are also big mistakes that have been being corrected. We do it with our churches. Oh, the church back then, remember how the church did this? And it, we, we only remember the good things is what it is. Nobody makes it a point to remember, I want to remember every negative thing that I ever experienced in that building. 
we're going to remember only the positive. So then all we're left with is positive memories. So it's always going to seem better. We do it with our music. Music back in the 90s, that was the, that was the best. There's people that say music in the 80s was the best. I don't, I don't agree with them at all. Our school experiences. Oh, remember when school was so wholesome and whatnot. I had the education of the birds and the bees in kindergarten in public school. I'm talking 1985. They've been gone for a long time, okay? But we romanticize it. Even our parenting, right? Oh, my parents, when they, they did this, it was the, it was the they, they were so smart back then. But who was it? Dr. <laughs> Dr. Spock, right? He's the one that wrote that book, said we shouldn't, parent, we shouldn't spank our kids. We should try to be their friends instead. Where's that gotten us? We compare everything to past experience, and you know what it's going to do? It's going to lead us to frustration. It's going to lead us to discouragement of unrealistic, unmet expectations because they were misshapen from the start. Israel is a nation built on stones of remembrance, but never was it supposed to be somewhere where they get stuck. It was to remind them of God's faithfulness then so that they would remind themselves of God's faithfulness in the future. Not that he's going to do the same thing, So we have to watch and not get so stuck in remembrance in comparison to the past that we can't see what God is doing in the present and what God is preparing for the future. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19 says, Do not remember past events. Pay no attention to things of old. Look, I am about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. We need to be reminded that our God is doing new things. But that doesn't mean our God is changing, by the way. Our God never changes, but the things that he does and how he's doing them does change. You remember he was setting up examples when Moses disqualified himself from the promised land. Remember that? He was first called, he's all, I want you to strike the rock to get water to come out of it. So he did that. Water came out. Great. Then there was another time where he was told to speak to the rock. But Moses was angry and he struck the rock again. And he ruined that imagery of the rock being Christ, who only needed to be struck once. And so he wasn't allowed to, to go in. God does different things. He's not always going to be the same. We, we cannot make God down into a formula. We shouldn't try. There's great danger in looking back and getting stuck there. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. We have to forget what is behind and reach forward to what's ahead. God wants us moving forward. He never wants us moving backward. Press on for the goal. Press on for the prize. Now, the second mistake that they made was idealizing and glorifying the past. It's known as the good old days syndrome. You see, at a time when they should have been overcome with joy and praising God for their return from exile and the house of the Lord being rebuilt, They were sad because it wasn't as good as it was before. And we can do the same thing, and we do it all the time. We look back to the book of Acts, and we go, the church of Acts, that was the church. They were all together in unity, and they were all perfect, and this and that. Is that so? You guys ever read the book of 1 Corinthians? That was a carnal church. They were divided They were against each other. They were having this. Most of the letters that we have in the New Testament was Paul writing to churches or other New Testament writers writing to churches to correct them. We say, oh, God was moving so gratefully back then. 3,000 were getting saved in a day and this and that. And today, nothing's happening like that. Or we go to the reformation. Oh, that was the great time in which everybody returned to the purity of the word of God and they broke away from the Catholic church. And, and then we think about the other times, the great awakenings. 
man, you remember the great awakenings and how there was just this revival to the things of God. Or, or we think of the revivals of the times past, the Welsh revival and all those going on. And we, and, and we tend to ignore what God is doing today. Calvary Chapel gets stuck in the 60s with the Jesus movement. That, that's, that's where we tend to go back to, oh, you remember when Chuck Smith was doing this and everybody was, all the hippies were coming together and getting baptized in the ocean. And we feel like we're not doing anything today because we're not doing anything like they did then. God's work in the past is not God's work in our day or of God's work in the future. He says, look, I'm doing something new. Even now it's coming. Individually, there are some who get stuck with what God has done in their past. Some of us don't serve God anymore, don't do the things of God anymore. We're, we're so focused and, and we tell stories. Remember how God did this in our life and, and we were, remember when God showed up there and they, they have no new testaments of what God is doing in their life because they're stuck in the past that they haven't moved forward and allowed God to do anything new. They were always relating to yesterday's experience. Ask yourself, have I looked at what God is doing today? Have I asked God, what are you doing today? We have to remember, God is always looking for new wineskins to put the new wine in. That's what Jesus was talking about, Matthew 9, 17. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Or the skins burst and the wine spills out and the skins are ruined. You put new wine into fresh wine skins and both are preserved. Don't look for God to do the new work in the old model. It'll break the wine skin. The Lord is always looking ahead to new wine, always looking ahead to new work of the Holy Spirit. And we have to accept who and what we are and whatever gifts God has given us. Small or great. And then we get on with the work in the situation in which he set us in. Now, in the Proverbs, there's a proverb that says there are six things God hates. In fact, seven are detestable to him. That's just a fancy poetic way of saying seven things God hates, but the seventh one is the worst. Proverbs 6.16 says, Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. Other translations may say one who sows discord among the brethren. This is one who stirs up trouble, sowing discord. This is the one who says, it's never going to be as good as it was. This is the one who says, it doesn't matter what we're doing right now because it's not like it was before. This is the one who never wants to do anything new for the name of the Lord. They just want to point back to what the Lord did and how it's not that. And they spread that seed of discouragement amongst brothers and, and God is wanting to do a new work, but now they're discouraged. God takes great exception to that person who would sow that discord. So we need to reshape our expectations for today and tomorrow. And God tells us how to do that through his message that he gives to Haggai. Verse four, his message is, even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you the declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. For the Lord of armies says this, once more in a little while, I'm gonna shake up the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. God is calling on the people through Haggai to reshape their expectations and work and stop being discouraged. 
See, God, next in his message, he, he adds a prepositional phrase. Even so. He says, is it not nothing to you by comparison? God isn't disagreeing with them. You're right. It's nothing compared to Solomon. Don't compare. Who cares? He says, even so. Be strong. This is what God is saying to all of us this morning. The work you are doing may not compare, but even so, be strong. Never sit in your calling with God and say, I shouldn't be here because it's not as good as, or I'm not as good as, or it's not worth it because it's meager in my eyes. You know, nothing is meager when you put it in the hands of the Lord, right? God repeats the phrase, and he says it to each one. He says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, remnant of people. I want you to know, God is saying it to you, to your name specifically. Be strong. And then the next command is work. Work. God has called us to work. His promise to us is he's prepared works for us beforehand for us to go and walk in them. We're called his workmanship in Christ Jesus. Be strong and work. And here's the truth in life. It is so easy to start anything. It's easy to start a building project. It's easy to start any type of ministry or project. It's easy to start in a calling. The work comes in continuing Continuing to the finish. We're called to run our race with endurance. Lasting endurance. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. And here's how you do that keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith for the joy that lay before him. He endured the cross. He despised the shame and he sat down at the right hand on the throne of God. Jesus did everything that's necessary for us to persevere to the end. And so God's commandment is be strong and work. And here's his promise. For I am with you. That is the difference maker in all of today. That is the difference maker between what's going on yesterday and what's going to happen tomorrow. God being with us. In the work of today, we don't compare it to the past to determine its worth and its use. Our expectation of the work of today is shaped by the presence of God. Shape your expectations. Is God with you? then the work continues and it's worth something because God is in it. It's the presence of God that is our strength. It's the presence of God that strengthens people. Never work to be strong in your own strength or you will get worn out. You'll, you'll, you'll get dried up. You will run out of your own resource we need to be strong in the Lord who has an inexhaustible supply of strength. And yes, it's true. Like many others, we face impossible tasks. They're impossible by normal means, but we may not be like Joshua called to lead the nation across the land and the promised land and go conquer all the pagan nations. We may not be David, who's a godly king, a man after God's own heart, enduring all the things that he did. We may not even be Solomon, the wisest guy who ever lived, the richest man who ever lived. We may not even be Moses, the most humblest guy to live. When you see Moses, you'll know who he is because his forehead's flat, because he was always falling on his face before the Lord. We're not the heroes of our forefathers, but 
We can be strong and equal to the task before us because God is with us. We are weak, but he is strong. Romans 8.31, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who's against us? We use this all the time to, to say, oh, we shouldn't fear any enemy. But do we use this to push us on to continue in the work of God going, if he's with us, what can stop us? Neither God nor Haggai exhorts anyone to be strong in themselves. He doesn't tell anybody, continue in your work in your own strength. All you got to do is muscle it through until you're done. God says, do it and you can do it because I'm with you. I'm present. My spirit is among you. Do not fear. When we are discouraged or tempted to give up, remember God is with us. Jesus, one of his names is Emmanuel, God with us. The promise in the New Testament our God doesn't live in a temple made with human hands, but he now resides in us as we are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells within us who are in Christ Jesus. There's three clear commands in accomplishing God's work. Be strong, work, and do not fear. Great things are only accomplished with these actions coupled with the presence of the Lord. It's God's abiding presence, not any previous achievements, not any previous glory, not any previous acts on our part that should ever shape our expectations. Zechariah, Haggai's prophetic contemporary, emphasizes trusting the Holy Spirit for enablement to do God's will. In Zechariah 4, 6, he answered, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. God continues in his message through Haggai, helping the people to reshape their expectations for tomorrow. That's all for today. Whatever he's called you to do today, you work, you be strong in it, knowing that God is present with you in what he's called you to. But for tomorrow, the Lord of armies says, know this once more in a little while. This is not chronological immediacy. This is more of an imminent kind of immediacy, meaning it could occur at any time. It doesn't have to occur at a specific time, but at any time. This is future, it's divine, and it's a sovereign promise. We need to reshape our expectations for tomorrow through the promises of God. There is nothing more sure about the future than what God has promised would be coming. God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. Guess what? If you shape your expectation by that promise, when the heavens and the earth shake, you remain unshaken. He says, I will shake the nation so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I'm going to shake up all the nations so that those in the nation who remember my promises, who, who think to look to the Lord, who see this going on and they go, oh my gosh, there's a higher being that I'm accountable to. I'm going to come out of it. And he says, and I will fill this house with glory. You see, the expectation of the glory of the house that they are building is not in the building. It's the promise of God that he will fill it with glory. Indeed, there's a shaking of the nations that has occurred, right? When they were led out of exile, that was the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire morphed and merged with the Medes. So it was the Medo-Persian Empire. They were the ones that took out Babylon. The Greeks later come under the commanding of Alexander the Great and conquer out Persia and the Medes. And then the Greeks in turn are shaken and taken out by the Romans. When, when we understand this, we understand that it's indicative of supernatural intervention. Did you know that it was the Grecian Empire that prepared the way for the gospel to be shared to every nation on earth? 
You see, the Greeks had an idea that when they conquered a nation, you got, you got loyal subjects when you brought them into your culture. And so they did everything. They would teach them Greek culture. They would teach them about the Greek. They would teach them the Greek language. And so the Greek language became the most widely known language across the earth. Then it was the Roman Empire that made it possible for everybody to travel to the ends of the earth. The Roman Empire came in and paved all the roads. That's why they say all roads lead to Rome, by the way. But God is also definitely pointing them to understanding the end. When Jesus comes to earth and the sky and earth tremble. Hebrews picks this up. Hebrews 12, verse 26 says, his voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken. That is created things so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful by it. We may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. My brothers and sisters in Christ here today, the promise to hang on to that which cannot be shaken. God is saying that he will shake the nations because he's bringing a kingdom. And when he brings that kingdom, that kingdom will not be shaken. And then he says, the gold and the silver belong to me. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first. Not because he's going to adorn it all perfectly. And he's saying, look, I have all the money. I have the cattle on a thousand hills. I can give you all those precious materials. It doesn't matter. He says, I am going to make it greater than the first a declaration, a reminder that the Lord is sovereign over all and he holds all. And we need to trust the Lord that he provides what's needed for the work. If you don't have it for the work, maybe God has decided that it's not needed. But also understand that if he's providing what's needed for the work, it should also lead us to understand maybe he's asking us to be part of that giving, to give generously. When we really trust God and our expectations for the future are shaped by his promises, we become generous people. Hudson Taylor was a groundbreaking missionary to the interior regions of China, second half of the 19th century. Don't compare yourself to his ministry, okay? But he experienced this principle early in life. As a young man, he preached in boarding houses in the poor slums of London. There was a poor man asked Taylor to come back to his room and pray with his wife who suffered from complications from childbirth and was near death. The man had no money at all couldn't afford to pay a priest to come and perform last rites. And Taylor went to the man's room and he found a heartbreaking situation. Several children, the afflicted mother, and a three-day-old baby living in absolute filth and squalor with no food, no money. And Taylor knew he had a $20 coin in his pocket that would meet their needs. But it's all the money that he had in the world to himself. He began to speak to the family about God and the Lord spoke to his own heart and said, you hypocrite. Telling these unconverted people about a kind and loving father in heaven and not prepared yourself to trust him without your $20. Taylor wished he had had two $10 pieces in his pocket. He would have gladly given them one. But all he had was a $20 coin. He was taken aback, but decided to lead the family in the Lord's prayer. And as soon as he said the words, our father, the Lord convicted him of his hypocrisy once again. He struggled through the prayer under tremendous conviction and gave the father the 20 piece. And that provision saved the life of the mother and rescued the family. You see, knowing God should make us more generous instead of less generous. I don't have to give to their need because God will provide for them some other way. We are always looking for God to provide some other way other than ourselves. David Guzik, one of my favorite Bible commentators. The final glory of the house will be greater than the first. Did you know that their concern was the temple that they're building is not like what Solomon built? But did you know that God never told him, build a temple like Solomon's? That was never the thing. 
He never said make the former temple that was once full of glory. He said build a temple. And he would, through himself, give the glory for it. And the glory of the temple is indeed greater. As I said, King Herod remodeled the temple into something greater than Solomon's in which you can still go to Israel and you can see the remodeling that Herod did. But also the Lord of glory, the promised Messiah, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, visited and worshiped in that temple. And then God's last promise, he says, in this place, I will give peace. And that word peace is the word shalom. It's not mere stopping of conflict. Shalom is the establishment of a lasting and righteous goodness. Matthew 12, 42. Jesus talking to the disciples says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is talking about himself. And Hebrews 9, 11 says, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood and having obtained eternal redemption. Do you understand that when Christ came, he made that temple filled with glory, never again having to do sacrifices in it because he himself was the perfect sacrifice. They've been replaced, the temple and the sacrificial system replaced by the person of Jesus Christ. We no longer offer sacrifices in a physical temple, which I'm glad for because it would get messy here. Christ is the final sacrifice. The former glory has been replaced by a greater glory. And in Christ, also know this, peace has been given as was promised. Peace between God and man is found through Jesus, our mediator and high priest. Peace with our neighbor is made possible through being made into one body of Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. While Jesus has fulfilled these verses in some way, we also know they are still yet to be accomplished. Hebrews 12 cites verse 6 in the context of comparing the giving of the old covenant at Sinai to the new covenant in Christ Jesus. After displaying the superiority of the new over the old, the author gives this warning. 12.25, it says, See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven, that his voice shook the earth at the time, but now, now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Again, yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. See, when God spoke to the Israelites from Sinai, the earth shook. Another shaking is coming that will shake both the heavens and the earth. And it, it's known as the day of the Lord when Christ returns visibly as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, consummate the coming of his kingdom for all eternity. After Christ appearing, the heavens and the earth will pass away, being replaced by a new heaven and a new earth, as we read in Revelation 21. Upon the new earth will be the new Jerusalem, and in that city there is no temple. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We are also told that the king of the earth will bring their glory, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city, and that it will contain the glory and the honor of the nations. That is the fulfillment of Haggai's oracle. On that day, God will shake for eternity the nations and take their glory for himself. On that day, the Lord will fill his house with glory and its glory will be greater than all former times because the dwelling place of God will be with man once again. On that day, God will give his peace, his eternal peace to his people as we live forever under his loving reign 
But until that day, we wait. Until that day, we work while we wait. We strive forward without fear. And we are those who have already read the ending of our story. We devote ourselves to God's house and seeking first his kingdom. Knowing that in Christ, our best days lie before us, not behind us. We are people of hope, a blessed hope, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 2, verse 13 and 14. So let us therefore be zealous to work for our God and let us not be discouraged in the thinking that our labor is in vain and is of no use because we have misshapen expectations, seeing it as nothing in our own eyes. Reshape our expectations through God's presence and his promises because God is with us and his spirit dwells within us. And in a little while, he will make all things new for us who belong to the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Be strong, all you. Fear nothing but God. And remember that the Lord of hosts is with you. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for your word through your prophet Haggai. We thank you for the promise that you are with us. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. We don't have to fear not being strong enough. We don't have to fear it not being good enough. because you are with us. Help us to shape our expectation for the work you've called us to today through your presence that abides with us. As we wait for that glorious future, that promised hope of your appearing, when first you appear in the sky and call your church and all those who have dedicated themselves to you beforehand, where it says that those who have gone on before us will by no means, uh, we will by no means uh, go first, but they will be raised first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with you. And then we will be forever with you. And also looking forward to that glorious return of Christ when we come with him as he gathers the, once again, the nation of Israel as they receive their Messiah and enter into the millennium kingdom. We call it a millennial reign, but you reign for all eternity for your kingdom shall not be shaken. Help us to hold on to those promises. Help us to hold on to that which cannot be shaken. In Jesus' name, amen.